Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Problem solving with Christ as the center. This is communication part two. And, you know, the scripture is very plain that we're going to have trouble in this life. Job chapter 5 and verse 7. Man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. And John chapter 16 and verse 33, our Lord says this, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you will have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. Our Lord is comforting. He is real. You know, as we are saved, we're not happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. The prosperity, the health and wealth gospel is sorely lacking in reality. R.C. Sproul says this, and this is on your handout. Even the best marriages are beset with problems. Often the difference between a healthy marriage and a defective one is not the number of severity of problems encountered, but in the way problems are dealt with. Thus, the first problem we must examine is the problem of solving problems. And that's from his book, Discovering the Intimate Marriage. So today, let's look at God's strategies for married disciples of Christ. And we're going to do this alphabetically, A through G. Uh, someone noted that my notes today only cover a page and a half. You're welcome. Still has a lot of blanks, so there's work to be done. But letter A, avoid extremes, passivity or uncontrolled aggression. Avoid extremes, passivity or uncontrolled aggression. During the Civil War, Petersburg, July of 1864, Union soldiers had Robert E. Lee and the Confederates hemmed in. The southern lines were so strong that, and Lee's maneuverings were so precise, so controlled, that the Union could not break the siege. Each attack cost both dearly, with the four-day massacre resulting in 11,000 Union losses. Well, someone came up with a plan. And this plan was that the Union Army was going to get Pennsylvania coal miners and they were going to mine underneath the no-man's zone. And they were going to get to where the rebels had their camp. And they deposited 8,000 pounds of explosives at the end of this tunnel underground. And so, what happened... The resulting explosion blew a hole in the ground 170 feet long, 90 feet wide, and 30 feet deep. Men, cannons, horses, artillery, all the equipment blew up and then landed in a crater under freshly turned dirt. The Union soldiers were poorly trained on what to do next, and they rushed down into the crater instead of around it and it resulted in the loss of 3,800 more Union soldiers as the Rebs gathered around the crater and just shot down into the Union soldiers. You might ask where the Union leadership was at that time. Well, not only had they poorly communicated 
to the regiments who really didn't understand what was going to take place. But the answer is that General Ledley was safely ensconced behind the lines drinking rum. The battle and almost 4,000 lives were lost by two grave mistakes. General Ledley was passive, not communicating and neglecting his role. Number two, Union soldiers were aggressively out of control, putting their own lives and the lives of their compatriots under mortal danger. Unfortunately, in our marriage, we can address problems or conflicts or hyper by passivity or hyper-aggression, neither of which are commended or commanded by the Prince of Peace. Now, in your notes, you'll see in the scriptures we see both passive and hyper-aggressive responses. Let's think about this. Was Adam passive or was he hyper-aggressive? In the garden. He was passive. Okay. How about Cain? Was he passive or was he hyper-aggressive? Hyper-aggressive. Eli, the high priest. Now that's going to be a little tougher. Passive, yes. Why was he passive? Do you remember? Not you too. Somebody else. Yeah, his sons. He didn't rebuke his sons effectively, powerfully, right? They were doing all sorts of horrible things. They were stealing. They were having relations with the women at the door of the tabernacle. Oh, my lands. Very passive. How about Saul? King Saul. Passive or hyper-aggressive? Hyper-aggressive, exactly. So... Those problems are not just related to the battlefield during the Civil War. Now, some people might say, being passive, well, we really don't have any problems. Why would someone say, why would someone say that they don't have problems when there are obvious difficulties? Why, what would be the motivation behind that? Peace? Yeah, loving peace. Passivity, everything is peaceful and great. I don't want to make this larger than it is. What else? Why would someone not address the problems and just let it lie? It's uncomfortable. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's messy. Get your fingers in there. Get dirty. You know, deal with the issue. Why else? Denial. Denial. Yeah, there's not a problem. A spiritual cop-out. Uh, praise the Lord. He's going to work it out. Yeah, but... You and I might need to get busy solving the problem. <laughs> we might actually need to be here. How about, how about another type of passivity? We have too many problems. There's no hope and no answers. Nobody ever had to put up with this. I give up. Why would someone respond in that way? What's, what's in the heart? What's driving that sort of response? Again? Yeah, lack of faith. God's not going to do anything here. What else? A lack of trust. What else? How about immaturity? Immaturity, never having been responsible for resolving issues in the past. You see this sometimes when people get married very young, go from their parents' home and into a marriage, but they've never been responsible because of sheltering 
to resolve problems on their own. Maybe Mama Bear always came to the rescue. Maybe Daddy Bear did. What else? Why might someone just give up? No hope. Yeah. There, there are many reasons why we could be passive and many motivations why we could be hyper-aggressive. You know, someone could say, arrogance, I'm a special case. You know, others and even God doesn't understand. Well, that's, that's kind of weird. All right, so A. A. Avoid, let's avoid extremes. Not passivity and not hyper-aggressive. Let's go to letter B. Believe. John MacArthur tells a story about coming back from a trip and being greeted with some of the leaders and staff spinning a story about some big problem. Well, oh, John, you won't believe what happened. It's big. It's really big. I don't know how we're going to deal with this. Well, he listened quietly and politely and then said, well, let's see what God will do about this. Even those of us who delight in the doctrines of grace and who appreciate the truths of God's sovereignty can fall into becoming practical atheists. <laughs> practical atheists when trouble comes up. Psalm 34 and verse 19. The afflictions of the righteous are many, but the Lord rescues from them all. Psalm 119 and verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted so that I may learn your statutes. That's part of why you and I go through problems. You and I go through those situations to draw closer to God, to learn of Him. Now, that's not joyful for the moment, is it? Job, again, quoting Job. Shall we accept good from God and not adversity? We have to recognize the source of his working in our lives. How about this one? Romans 8, 31, 339. A treasured set of verses. We know these verses. We go to them, but we don't always live there. We don't always live. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who bring charges against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, but rather was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of God in Christ? Will tribulation or trouble, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. Hypernicus. Some of you may wear sports clothing with the word Nike. Nike means conqueror. Hypernicus. We are more. We are hyper-conquerors. We are more than conquerors through Christ. B. Believe. C. Communicate. C. Communicate. One of the most important steps in solving a problem in marriage is talking about it with each other. 
while wisely choosing the time and place. Many problems have their origin in and are accentuated by failure in communication. How many of you have watched the old movie Cool Hand Luke? I see a smile or two. This quote is from this. I think, uh, I think this, this line was also used in uh, Dukes of Hazard with that southern sheriff. What we have here is a failure to communicate. When the problems are discussed, the couple must learn to talk to each other rather than at each other. Accusations and defensiveness are indicators that people are talking past each other rather than with each other. If you and I cannot come to an agreement about how to solve a problem, it may be helpful to submit to arbitration and mediation. You may want to call a trusted brother or sister. You may want to look at maybe getting some biblical counseling. You may want to dust off some of the books on your shelf and research how to communicate with each other, how to solve a problem. A third party without a vested interest in the dispute may be an important catalyst to get you and your life's partner to talk with each other. That's C, communicate. D, draw near to the Lord together. D, draw near to the Lord together. Psalm 5.1 says this, Listen to my words, my Lord. Consider my sign. Listen to the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will present my prayer to you and be on the watch. If you would, open up your copy of God's Word to this passage, Psalm 5, verses 1 through 3. We're going to camp here for a little while. And just like I used the alphabet here, A through G, we're going to use a few words that begin with the letter P. Psalm chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. And keep your Bible open. The normal response when we're attacked is to fight back immediately, to attack others, or to give up. If someone is fighting with us, we're thinking of what we need to say to defend ourselves or get back at them. Again, it's very human. If we, ins if we get insulted, we're thinking of a better insult to hurl back. Now, admittedly, you know, it may happen like a day later when we're in the shower. Oh, if I had only said this, that would have got... No, none of you ever do that. Michael, do uh, you do that? Yeah. Oh, Michael says no. Renee, his wife, says yes. <laughs> it happens. It happens. But David didn't do that. Look at this psalm. He took his complaint to the Lord in honest, personal, persistent, and expectant prayer. So... First, letter P. Hmm. Let's see here. Pray honestly. Pray honestly. David repeated appeals in verses 1 and 2. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Hear the sound of my cry for help. Are not the politically careful words of a man who is trying to project that he had it all together. Rather, they're the honest groans and grieving and cries of a man who is in great need. Do this honestly. You know, you, you read the Psalms, and don't you see that? Don't you see that the Lord records through the psalmist a prayer that's very honest and very open? The emotions are raw. They're real. And here is the case. 
The word translated groaning is used only one other time in Psalm 39, verse 3, and refers to musing, thinking about it, dwelling on it, and refers to silent or barely audible sounds. The repetition conveys David's honest, heartfelt cry to God. He wasn't putting on his Sunday best and framing his words in a controlled, restrained manner. He was calling out to God honestly in his pain. You and I need to do that. You and I need to pray honestly when we get into a problem in life or in particular in our relationship to the one whom our soul loves. Psalm 62 verse 8 says, Trust in the Lord at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So pray honestly, even if you're groaning. Next P, pray personally. Pray personally. David addresses God as my God and my King in verse 2. Look at that. The name Lord, verse 1 and 2, is Yahweh. The personal covenant name of God. Even though David was the king, he knew that he only served under a far greater king, the Lord God. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, says, kings on their own thrones, so David was, must be beggars at God's throne. David knew God personally as his king, his God, he was in a close personal relationship with God. He was not a stranger in God's presence. Brothers and sisters, you and I, through Christ, are privileged to have that very same access. He understands our weakness. He is a great and faithful high priest who intercedes with us through his spirit with groanings too deep for words. Pray honestly. Pray personally. Prayer should be a personal, intimate relationship between you and God. We, we must come to Him as our King, the Lord of our life, our Good Shepherd, our Master, our Savior, our Friend. We can't pray rightly unless we are submissive to His will. And His will is that we come to Him. We pray honestly. We pray personally. We pray persistently. Again, look at the text. Look at the text. Twice, David says that he will pray in the morning. In verse 3. The idea that, is that David's first thought in waking was about the threats of those, civil, those enemies. He immediately turned those thoughts into prayer. Whatever trials God sent into our lives are there to cause us to turn to him in honest, personal, persistent prayer. You know, even, even happy morning people, Matthew Henry was one of those, exhorts us that morning prayer is our duty because we are most fresh and most lively. I know, you, we need our coffee. I, I get that. I heard a couple of amens spoken out there. For me, it's tea, but I digress. But I must say that it's definitely not always my most lively and fresh time of the day. John Wesley attributed his long life and health to a consistent practice of rising at 4 a.m. 
and preaching at 5 a.m. I know some of you actually do get up that early. Get up at 4 in the morning and spend time with the Lord. Whenever we pray, we need to be persistent at it. Spurgeon said, prayer should be the key of the day and the lock of the night. The key of the day, opening it up, and a lock at night. Well said. So, we pray honestly, personally, persistently, and we pray systematically. Look at verse 3. He says, in the morning I will order my prayer to you. The Hebrew word for order was used of the priest ordering the sacrifice on the altar and arranging the bread of the presence on the table. Some apply this by suggesting that our prayer should be orderly or systematic. And that may be a helpful approach. Um, I've talked about this before. I try to divide up my week. I use these cards so that each day I focus on something else. There, there are some things I do, and by the way, I, I'm not consistent with this. This is what my goal is. Every day, pray about myself, my spouse, my family, my use of time, now that I'm retired, since I don't have a job. Um, Saturday is teaching and worship in the churches, so I've got all the people who teach. Sunday is love and devotion. Monday is uh, the key, the base things plus a page in the uh, directory. And each day is a page in the directory. Tuesday is unsaved people. Wednesday is uh, my Wednesday small group. Thursday is missions, all the missionaries. Friday is the Friday small group. And I have a list of all of the uh, elected representatives. Hopefully some of these will change. That's as political as I'm going to become. But this for me, this is, I, you may have something else. But this for me helps me to pray systematically. Um, and again, you, you may have something else. Um, I'd love to hear about it because, again, I'm not consistent with my prayer life. And if you have something that will help me, I'd love to hear it. Pray systematically. Honestly, personally, persistently, systematically. Pray expectantly. Look at verse 3 again. Look at verse 3. David also says that he will eagerly watch. It's the same word that Habakkuk uses in Habakkuk 2.1. He says, I will stand on my post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. It pictures a guard. At his workstation, waiting for the messenger that he's sent to return. It implies that when we pray, we should look for the answer. As our king, we can expect God to listen and respond to our needs as his subjects. So when you're under attack, let's take refuge to the Lord in prayer. Letter E. Letter E. Early intervention. Well, what does this mean? What does it mean to be soon involved in the problem? Well, one verse that Kim and I have used all through our marriage is from Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is a beautiful love story. And in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, 
in verse 14, you find this. My dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places of the mountain pathway, let me see how you look. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is pleasant, and you look delightful. Verse 15, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards, while our vineyards are in blossom. The intimate scene of husband and wife is one of deep affection, tenderness, and romance. Out of the blue, Solomon issues a warning about thirsty and curious foxes coming in to ruin their growing, delightful relationship. He sends out a warning signal. Pests are present, and they will destroy the vineyard, their relationship. If you look at this text, you'll notice that the warning is not when the grapes are out there in full, ripe juiciness, shining in the morning dew. But instead, they're in bloom. Not later, but right away. Let's get those foxes out of there before they cause more problems. And there's a need for early intervention. And you and I need to do what our favorite security team member at Faith Bible Church would say. And that is nip it. Nip it in the bud. Does everybody know who this is? You young people? Do you? Okay. That's what we need to do. We need to nip it in the bud. You know, Kim and I enjoy our breezeway. Our breezeway is a rustic little room between our kitchen and our garage. And it's got the Bedford stone walls, and it's got the windows. It's a good light, lighted area. It's a little rustic. You know, it's nice. We have the air conditioning put in. We have the heater uh, there, so we can use it year-round. But early this year, we noticed that there was a leak, and so we, we got a fellow to do the roofing for us. And our knotty pine ceiling was getting affected. And there was water coming down. It was discolored. And when I went up to inspect it, it was kind of soft. Can anybody guess Besides water, what the problem was? Termites. It was termites. So we nipped it in the bud and discovered that it was a limited infestation. It's important to catch that early since more structures are destroyed by termites than fire each year in the United States. Would you believe that? It's amazing. Amazing. Incredible as it may seem, these tiny, silent, industrious ex insects and similar pests cause an estimated $30 billion in damage to crops and man-made structures in the U.S. A homeowner who discovers termite damage will spend an average of $3,000 to repair the damage. Thankfully, ours only costs 800 And I still have to repair that knotty pine. So... Let's go after the termites. Let's go after the foxes. Let's do it early before the problem gets out of control and just roots itself in bitterness and anger and, and vitriol in our soul. Address it. Take care of it. Go before the Lord in prayer. So, 
avoid extremes, believe, communicate, draw near to the Lord together, do early intervention, and letter F, fight the problem, not each other. Fight the problem, not each other. Galatians 5.13 is very plain. We were called to freedom. And we're not to turn our freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but to serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in a statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And who's our closest neighbor? Our spouse, right? Paul continues in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, take care you are not consumed by each other. Galatian church had an enemy that was ripping them apart. Apart from the liberty they had in Christ, apart from Christ's righteousness instead of their own, and apart from each other, in arguments they were tearing each other up. They were being contentious and arguing with each other instead against fighting against the problems of false teaching. God's command in both the law and the lives of Christian disciples is that love does not consist of biting, devouring, attacking, destroying tearing down each other in carnal, fleshly ways. But instead, his emphasis, for we who are disciples of Christ, and we who are married disciples of Christ, we should focus on living for him and each other and resisting anything that would cause division and error to grow, fester, and prosper. Well, got a new graphic up here. Yes, I'm an amazing artist with my stick figure. Uh, actually, I cut and pasted this offline. Uh, what's wrong with this little graphic? What's wrong with the graphic? Yeah, they're fighting each other and they're not fighting the problem. They should be directing their energy, their, their angst, their emotional investment against the problem, figuring out what it is. You know, they should be directing their energy for that. It's wise to direct our anger toward problems, not people to focus our energies on answers, not excuses. So we are to genuinely, letter G, genuinely consider our personal, individual responsibility. We're all familiar with the passage from Matthew, right? What are we going to focus on? We're going to focus on the little speck of dust in somebody else's eye. We're going to focus on the timber that's sticking out of our own eye socket. My nephew up in Maine, Jonathan, is building a timber frame structure. And he is doing some amazing work. I thought that the timbers being used would need to be dried out thoroughly before you put the structure together. But no, that's not the case. In a timber frame structure, it's best to use green wood. Wood that's not been dried out, that's not been kiln dried. And the reason why is because when you put the joints and the mortises and all of those technical terms I don't understand together, as the wood dries, it actually makes the structure stronger. It's amazing. It makes the structure stronger. When we consider our responsibilities and we, we focus on getting the timber out of our eye, we make not only the 
problem-solving stronger, but also our relationships stronger. God gives us that amazing opportunity within our relationships to address those concerns and to build up our spouse, not tear them down, not devour them, but to build them up by considering our responsibility. We have three responsibilities that I'm going to address here. Our responsibility to own our contribution to the problem. The temptation is to believe that our contribution to the issue at hand is much smaller than the other person's. Is it really all their fault? And we've been the innocent party all this while? We need to evaluate our motives and remember that mercy that we have received and our own imperfect life is tainted by sin. We need to be willing to receive criticism humbly and to seriously consider it. We have, in addition, our responsibility to be gracious. Another way is to ask, how can I resolve this? It may be as easy as recognizing that we are not being forbearing and unwilling to let little things go. Is it really that important that the spoon that stirred the coffee is in the sink and not 18 inches away in the dishwasher? Is it really enough to be bothered and anxious and aggressive about it? Can we just say, oh, done. <laughs> Let's be forbearing. Let's understand each other's idiosyncrasies. Is it possible that this issue is inordinately large because we're not getting what we want? How much easier is it to be flexible, to compromise, and to go the extra mile in humility out of love for Christ and a willingness to serve someone else? Now, there's a family in our fellowship, and both the husband and wife are very... Um, they are not prone to promote themselves. Uh, and I did tell the husband in the relationship that I was going to use this graphic, uh, this, this post that he put on Facebook. And it's from the Wickershams. Wick, Mark, said, I asked Megan if she would be so kind to make me some iced coffee. And she asked me to scrape off the squashed lizard on our back door. How they got there? How did he get there? I have no idea. But it's funny. How did you get a squash lizard on your brain? We now have a clean door, and my taste buds are happy. This is part of what makes a marriage work. Partnership. Now, it could have been very easy for Megan to tell Mark, get your own coffee. Or for Mark to say, you saw it. Clean it up yourself. Well, thankfully, they both served each other graciously and delighted their spouse. Minor little problems weren't blown out of proportion and the peace and witness of their marriage and home was not unsettled. So again, genuinely consider your responsibility not only owning your contribution but your responsibility to be gracious and serve. Also, let's consider our responsibility to not only 
ask for, but extend forgiveness. Jesus had a dire warning for those who were too proud, angry, bitter, or suspicious, or stubborn to ask or grant forgiveness. We must keep our heart from becoming hardened in either way. And beloved, I, I've, got to, I've got to say this. This is, this is important. In our culture, in our time, people are so prone to say, oh, it's okay, or, you know, don't worry about it. Or The Scriptures and God's Spirit tell us in His Word to not only ask for forgiveness, but also to say, I forgive you. And if the God of all the earth took the time to communicate to us that we should use these words with each other, we need to avoid being wiser than God. We need to avoid being so proud that we will not recognize our own sin or the need to grant forgiveness. Say those words. Mean those words. Don't bury the hatchet with the handle sticking out of the earth so you can grab it later. In my yard, there's a, uh, there was a big stump. And Josh Beer kindly brought out one of his uh, neat pieces of equipment. Did you know Josh Beer was Batman? He really is. He's got all these neat toys. He brought out this stump grinder and just ground it down. Just no more stump. Well, over the time, over time, some of the roots are popping back up to the surface. Yesterday, as I was riding my ancient and decrepit ride-on mower, I drove over that. And unfortunately, the root was sticking up so much that my blade hit part of the root and my engine stalled out. For a moment I thought I'd really killed my mower. And then I realized, oh, I didn't take the blade off of Engage. That's why it's not starting. If you and I leave the roots of our problem out, if you and I leave the handle of the hatchet we thought we buried out, it's going to stall your marriage. It's going to affect your relationship. When you have a problem, seriously, do some heart surgery. Dig out the motives of your heart. Ask yourself, am I being truly forgiving? Am I being gracious? Brothers and sisters, I think if we follow God's strategy for dealing with problems. I think that our marriages will not only be treasured in our lives, but also as disciples of Christ, we will reflect His glory, His power, and His ability to make His name known among all the earth.